1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Kamora's Cultural Corner, Kamora Harrington. Born and raised in Connecticut, Kamora calls the city of Hartford, For 15 years, she was a mentoring program coordinator for True Colors. True Colors is a nonprofit organization in Hartford that works to ensure that the needs of LGBTQ and general minority youth are recognized and served. True Colors manages Connecticut's only LGBTQ mentoring program. Harrington has offered cutting-edge community programs in Hartford for decades and is recognized for her groundbreaking work. In 2019, she founded Camorra's Cultural Corner. The Cultural Corner is a community space where people learn how to use their unique and shared identities to make genuine connections with others. Their work is driven by cultural humility. Cultural humility is the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented or open to the other in relation to aspects of cultural identity that are most important to the person. The cultural corner serves, celebrates, and uplifts Hartford's diverse families and individuals who are black and queer, as well as a larger community using culturally humble practices. Camorra's Cultural Corner is housed in the location of the former Kabbalah House Community Cultural Center on Albany Avenue. Moving the center into a space with a history of welcoming marginalized communities into the larger Hartford community just made sense. Kamora has been able to collaborate with some of her now adult true color kids in the programming at the center. A proud lesbian mother of two sons, Kamora's personal mission is to create a space so that families can love their children. Well, Kamora, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today?
2: I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. You know, it has been a minute since we've seen each other. I'm always reminded of it when I see the pictures of your baby boy, who's now a little boy, you know, I mean, and how time flies.
2: So, fast. now, honestly, so in the last few days, I've been going through a lot of old pictures and just trying to pull out a lot of my queer work has been documented, and a lot of it's been documented through photos. And going back to all those old NBJC archives, it's just, this has been a long and wonderful walk, an interesting walk, but it's been going on for a while.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, you're originally from Connecticut, right?
2: Yep, this is where I'm from. This is where I was born. Mm
1: -hmm. And I know that you moved from different parts of it. Um, Where, now you're in Hartford. What... Give us a sense of what West Hartford is, or Hartford, Connecticut is like.
2: Hartford is, um, and this is a, Hartford is a capital city that's economically depressed and that I like to say that we've got a chip, low self-esteem and a chip on our shoulder. I love my city. We're a beautiful city. We've got some of the most beautiful artistic human beings doing, we've got great communities. In Hartford. And we have no money. And we've got the reputation that goes along with that. So all the again, we're a capital city. So the majority of our land isn't taxed. Um, Our schools, our school system, um, about 20 years ago, Shep versus O'Neill, which is um, a landmark court case that was supposed to desegregate the schools and in many ways did but then created this new type of segregation where many of our kids are bused out so my child should be going to a neighborhood school is going to the school in our neighborhood but it's not a neighborhood school the resources are going to other schools so that that whole I hate to say it but that American inner city under siege feeling
3: Mm -hmm. is
2: here there's there are many other people living in mid sized inner cities or cities in America have an idea of what I'm saying
1: Mm -hmm. now your mom I mean and I what I love is like you have an an older son and then you've got your your younger son but you, (laughs) okay and you're also unapologetically a member of LGBTQ community and talking about all this you chose to raise your families there in Connecticut (laughs)
2: Yes, yes, I
3: did,
2: -hmm. did, and I, um, well, with my oldest, we, we left for a while, we went, um, up to upstate, or upstate, we went up to Boston, north of Boston, to a very, very small town up there, where it was, it was a beautiful seaside town, and there were all of the social ills that we are going to go with a beautiful, idyllic, um, white New England seaside town when you're the black lesbian mom who is a single mom to a black male child. Um, so there are there have been all the challenges, but I was born here, so I'm, I've lived outside of Hartford. Hartford is where I was born and raised. So the center that I'm opening is on Albany Ave, which is, it's the Ave, okay? So that's, it's Black Street, USA in Hartford. Um, you know, 125th Street in Hartford. And I've now got my black... Les- my, you know, I'm a black lesbian with my black gay community center, cultural center here on Albany Avenue in Hartford. And that's huge that I can do it and come back here because there hasn't been space. And so for me growing up, there wasn't, you know, you have you have got to straddle all of your different communities, all of your different identities and deal with the fact that, I mean, here in Connecticut, black, lesbian, single mom, I had, Isaiah, or I had Joseph when I was 18. There's a lot of judgment and a lot of barriers that come with that. Um, but it's created a place where now I can do this right in the middle of the hood and it works, or it's working. Uh Um, yeah. Uh
1: Do you see a difference in raising your little boy and when you were raising your older son in that community? (laughs)
2: Let's let's just start off with in 1989, people were still debating whether we could raise children or not, you know. Definitely, we're yep. going to give our children all types of mental health issues mm-hmm. if we raise them. Down to when I'm 40 years old, as a single black lesbian, I adopt Isaiah by myself, and no one questions it. <laughs> so the political landscape has completely... The, the political landscape, which has created the landscape in which we can raise our children and our families, mm-hmm. has changed a lot. Um, and so now I know, I know that I've got the privilege of age. I'm a much older mother. But also, there's a lot less judgment because people understand that gay folks can raise children, it's not seen as the same novelty. Like there's, there's, there's the, the not okayness of people condemning you for the type of family that you have, but then there's the same equal ill treatment of people patronizing and celebrating what you've got in a way that's disingenuous to what's really happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so there's, there's more of an understanding of what a queer family, what a gay family actually is.
1: Well, you know, my hat's off to you because I understand I raised a son and there were all uh, who's an adult and there were always these questions like, you know, how's he going to know how to be a man? You know, what are you going to, you know, that somehow or other, because I was a black lesbian that, you know, this was an additional burden on him. And now I look at him and I'm going like, you know, yeah, we can do that, you know, but I know that it must be different and feel a little a whole lot easier in some senses raising your child now but do you find that you still have that same talk with them that same concern about your black male son son yes Mm -hmm.
2: yes yes completely um and I want to go back to what you were saying about raising your children know that when again back in the 2008, 2009, when we're in, in BJC, you had a grown son, Karen had a grown son, mm-hmm. my child was on the cusp of manhood, and I was I was he, he's a jazz musician, he lives in a world where space for queerness there really isn't a lot of it, and seeing and hearing about your relationships with your grown sons helped me a lot, and that was something that I looked up to and was really interested in listening to and hearing what you guys had to say, um, and now with Isaiah. There's, there is a lot more support, but then there's a lot of that same people, people are not as overt in what they say, but there are still assumptions that somehow I'm going to make him gay, <laughs> somehow, we, you know, mm-hmm. somehow that we've got to, you know, just all those same assumptions, people might not be as quick to speak them, but in their language, in their words, and the way they talk, those assumptions still, still dwell there.
1: Yep. Yep, it does. So... Yeah. You, yeah, you know, and thank you for that because you know Karen and I, are, you know, we still sometimes talk. She had, uh, we talk about you know watching our sons grow into manhood and these challenges that you still have. Does your okay? And, and one more mom question. Now my son is fiercely protective of me, you know, and don't don't let somebody he thinks that they're going to talk about me back for being gay. But I also found like, you know you weren't just like being protective of me because I'm your mother. You understood some of these things that I'm talking about. Is your older son, is he engaged in social justice work?
2: He is. He really is. And so he, right now he's working on a campaign in Maryland um, to, to he's doing, he's environmental justice. And he's working on a campaign to, to, and to, get rid of some pesticides and it's intricate but that part makes me feel so good again our social justice is different our issues are different but it feels so good to listen to his passion and when it comes to okay so I I wish that I could share with you I will share with you a picture of what he looks like right now so right now he's got his hair is long he's got he's wearing it in cornrows they're just beautiful and thick um and he hasn't dyed it yet right now so right now I think it's Blonde because it's in between colors. But he's planning on putting rainbow colors in there, and he's got his beads. And he's living in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, he moved down a few months ago. And and again, he's, he's a musician. He travels a whole lot. He does this, but right now he looks incredibly gender fluid. And we were talking the other day. It's like, yeah, mom, I gotta remember down here. People kind of think that I look gay. It's just like, and and the thing is, his gender expression is what it is. And he's you know he identifies as male. He's a he, but he he just has a fluidity that works for him that isn't at all informed by the outside. And, and a lot of that is growing up with us, with a gay family and it, with a gay queer family where that just was. Um, so I think that our kids walk through, walk through life, not with, with more openness, but not just more openness, more, more ability to accept themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and really, I mean, and so, you know, that's the thing that, you know, if we, I often wish that people would, the messages and the lessons that all of humanity can learn from our community if they weren't so busy trying to be concerned about what we do in our bedroom. You know, how, how it's like, you know, look at how we do families, look at how our kids are. And, you know, and these are the future leaders. So, I mean, I think that's just like really great. Now, when we met, you were working with youth uh, you were with two mm-hmm. colors youth working with youth seems to be one of your passions <laughs> all
3: my babies yep mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
2: um and all and, and and in all the ways and for all the ways I mean I believe that the work that I'm doing is revolutionary work and definitely liberation work and we know that youth are ready to do liberation work. Some some old folks are stuck and they're not trying to move forward. Youth, youth have the energy and the interest and they're ready to, to, to do the work that it takes to get to where we need to be. So that's always been a part of the youth work. But also, I genuinely love, I believe in the future and I love working with young people. And there's a whole lot of young people out there who aren't being loved. So True Colors, yeah. I spent 15 years working at True Colors. Um, I ran the mentoring program there that worked with DCF youth, uh, you know, youth in out-of-home care. Um, I also did youth programming, and you know, we all we all know the gay teens, the gay kids, and there, there's far too many of them that are thrown away and are unloved, and someone needs to be there for them. And someone needs this and that's true someone needs to be there for them and far too often no one is there for them um and a lot of my work at true colors working within the system really informs the work that i'm doing now outside of the system um and and that's why as i was saying earlier it's so wonderful i'm so happy that i'm where i am in the community where i where i am because there's a our kids are are alone. They're thrown away. Our black and brown kids, our communities can't choose not to deal with them in ways that they should. The gay community sucks them up, not at all thinking about who they are, where they're coming from as black and brown children, and they end up just, we know where they end up. Um, and we can talk about that, but I, I that's one of those places where poverty porn is what poverty porn is, and we know what happens to our unloved babies.
1: Mm-hmm. What got you into that work who was your influence my father Mm.
2: um and so my father what he worked he was a youth worker he worked with youth forever he went to um but he we went to Morgan State University, and while he was there, he, he was majoring in psychology. He ended up becoming a social worker. But one of his jobs when he was in college was he he started off as an overnight worker in a youth detention home, and caught the bug and just was a youth worker forever. Um, and when I was, I always say there there's some real pivotal points in my life in where the desire to work with children and just understanding I was going to work with children came from my father. Um, And in 1983, my father was appointed the um, supervisor for juvenile detention for the state of Connecticut. And he was, you know, it was 1983. He was a black man. And it was a huge deal. There was a big article in the newspaper, and we were all very, very excited because Daddy was in the newspaper. And he sat us down and explained to us what his role was as the black man who was going to be in charge of juvenile detention. And this is, you know, right after the late 70s. So there had been all the horrible gang things that had happened there. So police departments, kind of like we are right now, police departments, the state were being accused of being horribly racist. So how do you deal with this? You put a black man in
3: charge of detention, mm-hmm. and that
2: will deflect. That, that was a select, right? And so he explained this to us completely, what it was, and explained to us, you know, how they were hiring him because he was a very socially acceptable black man. He spoke the way that he spoke. You know, he knew how to dwell. He went to the schools that he had gone to. And after he gave us, he gave me and my brothers, both of us, um, or all three of us, our first copy of the book, who sat by the door. <laughs> and explained, and yes, and, and your folks who have read that book, yeah. And it was, we've got a role to play. And we've got to do it, and, and we do it in the way that works. Um, and I, so I spent my, my time in non-profit doing it that way, and, and I had my father throughout a whole lot of it. So my father, again, as I said, he ran juvenile detention to the state of Connecticut. He retired, and then I'm running a youth program, which is contracting with the state of Connecticut. And I'm working with some of the same folks who my dad has worked with in the same, um, some of the same facilities. And when it comes to working with young people, my father is the my greatest influence. Mm. Um, he 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 passed three years ago, and and a whole bunch of his work and photos and all that good stuff is gonna go up. And I'm doing a montage, some a few different montages. Um, but I've got. And I've got poetry, youth poetry from 1963 when he was working with youth um, in his detention facility. And he was doing a poetry workshop with them. And he kept their poems. So I've got the papers that these boys wrote on. And that was like one one of the most important lessons I think that he taught me was that no one else sees these kids. No one else remembers them. And that's our job. Our job is to see them and remember them. And so, you know, 1963, my dad passes in 2016. I'm going through the papers and he's kept their words this
1: long. Wow. You know, did you, <laughs> as you watched him, did you know then that this is what I want to do with my life? Or, you know, did you think, you know, did you try to take another path but then be pulled back to that?
2: <laughs> yeah, you mean... Um, are we talking about before or after I was going to go restart the Harlem Renaissance by using African dance to bring liberation to black America?
3: Yeah. Of
2: course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that just made sense. Um, but no, I was going to I was going to be a regular classroom teacher. That's what it was going to be. So the, the first idea after realizing that I was not going to make it on Broadway, um, I was going to be a regular an elementary school teacher and then during my student teaching realized that there was no way I was that was going to happen um luckily it happened during my student teaching but I realized then that I need I needed to figure out a way to touch more folks um because the, you know all of the interesting stories but working in a public school classroom I realized I could hurt parents feelings I could make life harder for parents um but I couldn't really affect families to do the, the upliftment work that I wanted to do. And I was, I was going to stay as far away from anything social worky ever, because again, my dad was a social worker who being raised by a social worker means that everything is a long conversation, no matter what the extra instrument is going to be. Mm-hmm. We're going to discuss it. We're go- Yeah. Um, and I actually did a great job of kind of circumventing being an actual social worker, but working in social work and doing the same types of, of stuff. Um, but yeah, I wish, you know, again, I just said dad passed three years ago. I wish he was around right now because what I'm doing right now is the type of thing that we've talked about so many ways. Like there are no, there are no places for kids to just be where people aren't collecting a paycheck on their misery. I'm creating a place for kids to just be without people collecting a paycheck on their misery. Um, these are the kinds, of, this is the fulfillment of a whole lot of conversations over the last 40 years.
1: Mm. Okay, well, I want to take a first break, and I want to talk a little bit about that work that you did before going into your new project. So we'll be right back. If you're just joining us, I am speaking with Kamora Harrington, the founder and executive director of Kamora's Cultural Corner in Hartford, Connecticut, and we'll be right back. and we're back here on collections by michelle brown you know you worked with youth but you didn't just work with youth um it was interesting that true colors says cause uh, the tagline is sexual minority youth and family services okay why not just lgbtq youth oh um because what
2: was when that tagline was created, that was back. In, so true Colors started with uh, quite a few contracts that involved the state of Connecticut. And that was back in the early nineties when we weren't saying LGBTQ yeah. and sexual minority. And also we were starting to see and understand that trans trans people were people that we needed to respect and trans youth might be a thing as well. So Creating this sexual minority youth and their families and people who work with them was a way to umbrella cover everyone. Because when you're working with the state and you're working with state contracts, you either have to figure out how to be so broad that you catch everyone under your umbrella or you're ridiculously, ridiculously, ridiculously fine-tuned so you can catch everyone you want to catch. Um, so sexual minority youth covered was the way to cover everything that needed to be covered and that's actually yeah that's that's a point in time and a point in history like like mm-hmm. again at that time in 1993 no one would, would have had a queer youth organization and then and expected to get a state contract today if you're not using the word queer people understand that you don't know what you're talking about
1: hmm. did you s- l- seek out an organization working with queer youth or did you know was that was that your goal when you decided to take this path? Did you specifically look at at for organization? And what did yes. you uh, and what did you hope? What did you see that you hope to be able to bridge for young people in our community with the state, with their families, with their communities?
2: Uh, so so yeah so um when I moved back to Connecticut from Massachusetts the goal was I I wanted to work with queer youth and clear black and brown youth. And I wanted to work with that population because this that was we're around two thousand yeah, two thousand four, two thousand five, and the idea of GSAs and gay teenagers being in high school and being out is happening on a national level. So we we've known these kids, you know, when we were in high school, so I was in high school in the eighties, there was the one out gay boy in his life and everyone else is in the closet because he didn't want to be robbed because Rob's life was nothing to envy at all. Um, but kids are out and we're hearing about these kids being out, but we're hearing about these white kids being out and we're hearing about kids in the suburbs. And, you know, so Archer, there, there are all these different groups that are starting and the black queer kids are having to leave their neighborhoods, leave their communities and, and leave, leave what are their traditional value systems to step into this gay thing somewhere else if it exists for them somewhere else and very often for all the reasons back that they weren't, they weren't anywhere else. Um, and i you know, that's who I am. I'm, I'm a black lesbian. These, these are my kids. Um, and someone needed to be there for them. So I, was, I just knew I wanted to work with youth again and I didn't want to work with a population that I wasn't going to honestly, that I wasn't going to connect with in that way. I, I, truly think, and this sounds like nonprofit. here, I'm going for the money or I'm going for the, the poverty piece, but I'm not, but queer, black, queer youth in the United States are tragically left behind in so, so, so many ways that I was I was looking specifically for whatever that position was going to be. And then this position opens up where I can run a mentoring program for queer youth in out-of-home care. We know that our kids are ridiculously overrepresented in out-of-home care. There we go. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you know, like you you talked about the population there and I know that uh, I've been you know, Connecticut, you know, first thing that comes to mind is that it gets predominantly white. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think the last sentence uh, census said it was like seventy seven percent white. But then look at our cities, come to our cities. Mm-hmm. Hartford is what is Hartford? I know I know we're fifty four percent
2: Latino now. I think we are Oh, we're major. after that, it's black folks, you know island folks, black folks, mm-hmm. and maybe three percent white folks. this Our cities are so black and brown.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and the suburbs are about as white as they could possibly be,
1: you know, cause we here have we have the roof Ellis Center here. And one of the things, you know, like sometimes people go like, "Oh, well, you know, it's just like for urban you." But like you said, many of these kids, They might come from suburban areas. We also see suburban kids because, you know, for we may have come a long way, but it's still not easy to be a queer youth anywhere. So they come into the city. And if you look at the city, cities have a different complexion to that. Okay. How did you, Mm -hmm. you, you know, really? I mean, it's just like that. And these became like your kids. I mean, mm-hmm. you were there 15 years. How hard was it to, to leave your kids?
2: Well, okay. first off, I'm on the other side of town. Mm-hmm. So I didn't leave. I didn't leave. I went to the other side of town.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I get we're, we're the queer community is, is a small and tight community and a whole bunch of my kids. Right now, the majority of my volunteers, the majority of people who are helping me out, are grown up my kids. Mm. So, so there's this beautiful, in, the, in that Hartford Curran article, if you read it, the woman with a quote, Shanique, mm-hmm. who runs a program at, over at Planned Parenthood, which is three blocks to the south of me, ever side to the west of me, which is wonderful. You know, she runs the STARS program. Mm-hmm. We can work together now as peers. What a great time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, she's in her, yeah, she's in her mid 30s or early 30s. Sorry, she's in the early 30s. Um, <laughs> but she's a full-grown adult. So my kids are still here. Um, so the show on the 20th, Arian, who's performing, one of my kids. One of my kids is growing up to be an amazing out. And, and that's just, that makes me feel so good. My, my kids, who were my kids 15 years ago, are now these grown, unapologetically black and brown and queer and the white ones. They're out there, but they're owning themselves and doing what they need to do on this earth. Um, and that's, that's amazing. Um, And again, so uh, for Pride, um, we're having a youth Pride party on the 14th, and there's a group that's actually another outgrowth of True Colors, which is Q Plus, and they're going to be running the open mic night before the Pride party. So from 7 to 8, there's an open mic, and then from 8 on, there's a Pride party, and Q Plus is running that. So we're all right here. I mean, one of the things that you see around, and definitely in poverty-stricken areas where there are a lot of nonprofits, we act like... These all these different programs are serving a whole bunch of different people, and they're not. There's a, there's a finite number of youth in a the community. There's definitely a finite number of black youth. There's a, definitely a finite number of black queer youth. Um, and Camorra's and Cultural Corner is not at all just for black queer youth, but there's, there's a very small number of these kids. And if we're all touching them, if we're all working them appropriately within, in the ways that we're supposed to, then they're going to be supported wonderfully. Um, but when we think about them as, you know, these are the kids that belong to this program, these kids belong to this program, these kids belong to this program, they don't get the rich experience of living in a community, in a true community that, that they need. Um, so that's, I enjoyed, I, man, True Colors, again, going through all these photos, trying to figure out what I put up, True Colors was a whole lifetime of a whole lot of greatness and a whole lot of learning and a whole lot of everything. Um, with amazing kids who I haven't left and I haven't lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm right on the other side of town, so those kids can come on over. Um, one thing, that, as I've been talking about True Colors with Folks, there's, as I say, you know, unapologetically are coming from an Afrocentric, black, queer, queer perspective, that's talking about how we care for each other, how we create inter, intergenerational space completely. And it's not excluding anyone. Everyone is included. And they get to step into this new, different way of being because we're used to being in Eurocentric, cishet headspace all the
1: time. You know, I mean, because I was talking, to, I was in Atlanta over the week and I was talking to someone. And, you know, and we both share the NBJC time and we both share that. Amazing period when you know we were doing things like going to the White House, we we're in D.C. and everything, and you know, and I'm sure that you have your share of a little awards. But isn't it seeing those ones who were your kids who are now you're working with and they're doing, taking it on and continuing in ways that maybe you wouldn't, but you can see your handprint on it. And like you said, they're now they're your peers. Isn't that the greatest reward? Yes,
2: yes, yes, yes. Um, It fills my heart listening to... So I I got to facilitate an arts panel in June for Pride Month this year and facilitating it. There were young people, and young people and not so young people who I'd worked with, and just listening to them speak and hearing, knowing where they were coming from. Again, like my kids, I worked intimately with my kids for years on end. Like if you were in the True Colors program, you were probably there for for three, four or five years. And listening to them share the the life experience and how that life experience shapes these humans that they are. It's it's the most amazing. Experience. It feels great. It feels wonderful. The, the pride in them, the hope for the future, the knowledge that we can do this. It's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine it is. I mean, because really, that's what I stop and I think of when I see someone you know, and it's like, wow. You know, and and you see them hearing you say how you looked at Karen and I and how we were with our sons and how you looked at that. And, and it, you thought about how we were and, and, and that intentionality that we were with our kids. That is like, you know, there's no award in the world that's better than that. So, you know, like you said, yeah. that intergenerational mix that's going on. And I think that, that's just like... Crazy. So... You decided to leave, okay? Yeah. How did you know it was time?
2: Oh, a, a, a few, a few things. Um, so when you realize that you've got to, that that you're trying to figure out how to justify the grants rather than doing the work that mm-hmm. you know is the important work that needs to be done because you're you're really grant dependent. That has a lot to do with it, um, and I also just realized that the work—the work that again, my my life work. So True Colors, wonderful job, great experience, but my life work was taking me out of a place where I could just work work inside the system. In, in a gay way, um, and what I mean by that is my work. So my own personal consultation, my own personal um, work outside of True Colors, the trainings I conduct are cultural humility um, trainings, and that's the work of, that came that became Kamala's Cultural Corner. So over over like the last decade, I've been teaching cultural humility classes, putting together my own trainings, which encompass everything together. So we're not doing a queer youth training. We're doing, again, cultural humility. Who am I? How do I fit into this world? How do I fit into this room? How do I fit into a space where I can work in harmony um, and trust and respect with other human beings? And I, I, for the last, probably for the last four years, I've been teetering in that place of, okay, so when I make half of what my salary is doing my own consultation, then I'll leave. Okay, so when I can definitely pay for my own health insurances, um, but, but I knew that 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 change was on the horizon at some point, but I'm a black single mom. I had Mm -hmm. my first kid when I was 18. The fear of stepping out on my own, that complete fear was just there there in all the ways that it was. Um, But finally it was time for my oldest, like I said, Joseph had moved down to Maryland. Life is what life is, so there's some stuff that happened to create a place where it's time for me to move. Um, And it was time to step out and do this so, My first plan, honestly, was that I was going to work from home and do Camara's Cultural Corner. So as you read the more as cultural um, corner as a physical and, or metaphorical mm-hmm. and physical space. The funny joke about that was I was writing up my own regular business plan, which was speaking of that I, I go out and I do my trainings in your space, and you know we can do this in a public space, but really not considering having my own space. So I've had people come to my house for consultations forever, but if I'm going to have the business, I'm going to be working out, but figuring out how to work in other people's spaces and, work, and how to work virtually. And then Kabbalah House, which is the building that Camorra's Cultural Corner is, that Kabbalah House has been there since 2009, and I've done trainings there, I've taught classes there, I've worked with Swan and Abazero people who own it, or who who are transferring ownership now, um, but who owned it, who... You know, we knew each other. We respected each other's work. And every so often they'd say, Hey, Kamara, you know, do you want to work over work at cabal House? Do you want to run it? Do you want to run programming? Well, no, I'm doing other things. And it just it wasn't the right time. And as I was doing, stepping out on my own and writing up my business plan, Swan called and said, Hey, Kamara, um, we've really, you know, we're, we're we're getting ready to sell. We're about done. So would you like to come over and, and run it? And I came over and we discussed it and it just made sense. And so now I've got the physical space where I can do... A whole lot of other
1: stuff out of it. You know it was interesting as I was reading about how you're talking about about Kabbalah House that you know over here had African designs and a Hebrew logo. I mean, how do, how was it perceived? Was it a, a staple of the community? Was it a place that people went to where what you're doing was a natural progression or a natural fit for this same space?
2: yes um so yes with a gap so kabbalah house that when when it first opened um 2009 through about 2014 yeah to about no, actually as was born so yeah, to about 2014 um was a wonderful arts and culture place so amazing open mics wonderful performances again like i said i thought well i didn't teach but i facilitated yoga classes in there i did cultural community classes we did um we did Hartford One oh One classes with police um with police officers in there. So it was a wonderful place with great stuff happening. And then the owners got pulled away. so this is this is the place that they had in Hartford. They were doing most of their work in Jamaica, in Western Massachusetts, in California. So they were pulled away to their other places, and they were having other people run it. And what it ended up turning into was a dance hall. Mm. So if you look, um, if you go online, you see the photos. Like when we when we moved in, it was it, w- it was it was a drain on the community in a lot of ways. So there's a restaurant next door that we've partnered with, and they now cater And when we have college groups and folks in who want food for their trainings. She's catering those trainings, and that's great. But she ended up closing her restaurant on Sundays because of what was because of, of the noise traffic and the foot traffic that was happening mm. at Kabbalah House. So, and maybe, and that was when, when Swan and Abazero called me, like, you know, we came down, this can't happen, can you know, can we help out here? Um, So, it was a beautiful, vital place. So, again, a whole bunch of those volunteers, when I talk about my older kids, they were my kids of true colors, and I knew about Kabbalah House because one day one of my kids said, oh, yeah, we're doing this over at Kabbalah. And I decided I need to go find out what Cabala House was. And and it was a wonderful space. Um, Mm -hmm. And now we're bringing it back. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, because I mean, I imagine, you know, like you said, it was there. It started out right. Then it went to the other place. Um, Has the neighborhood around you, it sounds like they were really glad to see someone come in and take it back to being that cultural center. But have there been questions like what are you going to do there and you know I know that the cultural center you know you've got your kids you're focusing on LGBTQ people um what how has that felt with that neighborhood
2: um interesting interesting and and thanks for bringing that part in and it feels good it feels good to have this conversation um because this is as wonderful and great as it is, there are the scary parts as well. Um, So there is at least one pastor in the community who is not at all happy this is happening. And he's made it quite clear on social media that this is a horrible thing that's coming to the community. And the black heterosexual community has done a lot to shut his voice down. And that's been wonderful. Um, So when I first came into the space, and we really we're not really up and running yet. We are going to be up and running October 1st. We've got you know, our soft openings. I'm doing trainings in the space already. We still are doing a lot of work. Um, but for most of July while I was there, there was a huge amount of skepticism around me. Um, and where I am, it's so it's Albany Avenue. It's the black neighborhood. It's the Jamaican neighborhood. So uh, the restaurant next door, most amazing Jamaican food ever. Thank goodness I've got a partnership with her. Um, but there's a lot of folks who have some real homophobic ideas around gayness and this idea of bringing this gay homosexual bati boy culture in did a lot of skepticism um but i came in the way that i come in and that was this is who i am uh, um and one thing that did we're still a work in progress and i'm not going to say that i've won the community over like we are not at any beautiful song moment at all yet
3: mm-hmm.
2: but the fact that when people would come and ask me what i was doing and how i was doing it well This is what it's going to be. We're going to do all this programming. It's coming from a black, queer, Afrocentric perspective. Let's talk about what that means. These kids need space. Now there was, there was, um, I think maybe my third day there, a pastor who stands across the street or used to stand across the street into the street preaching. He and some of his women came over and, you know, decided they're going to pray for us. And I took the prayer and it was wonderful. And thank you so much because we want to keep everyone safe in all the beautiful ways. Um, but once stuff started happening, And people started seeing that we really were transforming the space and that there's a beautiful healing rock garden in the back and that we were making that beautiful um, and making the front beautiful and bringing in people. There was a shift. And after, so Trinity College is the elite big college on the hill here in Hartford. And they brought a few classes through to do their Hartford 101, culture, beginning the ideas of cultural humility, how to do that bridge of that town gown divide. Once those classes started coming in and they saw how it was really going to work them into the community for real and how, how it was inviting the community to come in and really share this is what it is to be Hartford, this is what it is to be us living here, a lot opened up after that. Um, and right now I've got my 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 greatest ambassadors are the folks who hang out on the street in front of the spot.
1: Could you explain to those who aren't familiar with the term cultural humility and how does that difference from cultural competence?
2: And, and let me try not to use too much jargon. Cause I was, so cultural competence kind of takes into this idea that you can reach, reach a level of competency or, you know, figure out how to be competent in other people and that's just an arrogant standpoint to begin with. So there's absolutely no way. If you believe that you can be an authority on other human beings, then you've lost your ability to connect with other human beings. Um, Cultural humility kind of starts from the standpoint that I've been raised in this amazing culture that has these wonderful ideals and ideas and values and mores and ways of being that have created this me, and this me that exists, because of everything that has created this this culture that's in me, I am going to look at other cultures and other ways of being in a skeptical way. So I need to be able to humble myself and realize that these things that I find weird and strange, and these things that I feel as if I can't connect with, are just me looking from my lens and my beautiful my beautiful culture and my beautiful place, and not a place of inferiority or something to be skeptical about other folks. Um, and I think I think that's. A, decent way to summarize it, mm-hmm. um, but really cultural humility means figuring out how to decrease yourself, but use yourself to connect with folks who are different. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, and it seems like those ministers, you know, if they took a moment, that, the, you know, they'd get it. But we know that sometimes they need to take more than a moment, sometimes several seats before before they get it, you know. But how, you know, being in this space, does it give you an opportunity to not only talk about it, to teach it to other people, but to practice it? Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. how do you, what is, what is one way that in this in space, this when you came in and knowing that people had had this bad experience with it being like a dance hall and that there were some people, there are many people who are culture. What is a, a simple example of something that if someone else was stepping into a similar situation, what's this easy, the most basic thing that you can do to exhibit cultural humility?
2: the most, the easiest, most basic. What I've found is talking to folks who are different, sharing who I am. So, so we know the importance of pronouns and we Mm -hmm. know coming in, you know, Kimura, she, her, but coming with, you know, I'm Kimura That's That's my black girl name. There's an apostrophe in the middle of it. There's a story that kind of goes along with it. Who are you? Mm. um, or whatever way it is that that comes, but, but figuring out that way to, here's a little bit of me, share with me a little bit of you, and then see where that goes, Mm -hmm. um, and that, and being, being brave about it, is that, I'm sure, you know, for a whole lot of folks, we've gotten to this place of call-out culture, where we understand that the way to be polite is to not ask anyone about themselves, you know, to, to, to just, you know, we're, we're just gonna, we're all the same, here we are. And, that, and that's that's one of the things that has been most disappointing of over maybe the last decade, watching as we as it appears as if we expanded the whole LGBTQIA to the queer community. We've really created a whole lot of new boxes and a whole lot of new ways that people have to just fit in
3: mm-hmm.
2: rather than saying, hey, this is who I am. These are the words that I use for who I am. You know, Who are you and what are the words that you use for who you are and, and what do they mean? like this morning I did a um, training for the public allies program and we started up one of the things that we did was put them in, you know, small groups of people and said, okay, so what I want you to do in your small group is talk about the culture that you come from. So talk about your culture and then we're gonna come back and report back on it. And immediately the conversation started. Um, And after about a minute, I stopped the room and said, okay, so since you're all talking about culture, what is the community agreement that you came up with? So what's what's the agreement on the definition of culture that your group came up with? At which point they all just stopped and realized, oh, everyone just assumed that when she said culture, we all understood what she was saying. We were all using the same definition rather than saying, okay, when she said culture, I thought it meant this. What does it mean to you? It's putting a lot of extra words on stuff but creating a space that says, no, I really want to make sure that we're on the same page. I really want to make sure that we're talking about, talking about respecting and getting to the meat of who we are and what the conversation is. So we can't talk about what our culture is. We can't talk about our community is until we've decided and understood what we mean by those words.
1: Mm. You know, and I think I agree with you. It's sort of like the more letters and things that we add to it, like you said, it's like putting people in boxes and you you often thought, I mean, I know that back in the day as we've been doing this work that I thought that the idea would be like is that we would be able to break those boxes and redefine what it means to be you know, black queer, lesbian, gay you know, that you weren't like so, so strictly into boxes, but often you hear people from the LGBTQ community really trying to put people in boxes and those who are different I often say that they feel like outsiders
2: yeah and that's that's got the end that was yesterday so like I said we're not really open but yesterday 17 year old Jamaican bisexual girl just kind of came in off the street with her friend you no know, male who was heterosexual but very 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 effeminate And two of them were in there, and she just sat down the corner. And it was really nice to hear them talking about how how nice it felt in there, how cool it was in there, because they're outsiders and they're gonna be outsiders wherever it is that they go. Mm
3: -hmm. That's
2: just what it's gonna be. And if you can create a space that's a space, just whatever, get let be an oasis, but a place for the outsiders. That's wonderful because when we don't do that, then the outsiders have to figure out how to then put everyone else in box, and it just it turns into this place where. Everyone is working so hard at proving that they're okay in a fake way that we continue to, as we expand and grow. Because again, the same thing. I was right there with you. We're going to expand these boxes. We're going to come up with all these, all of these ways that everyone can be, so that we can just expand it and recreate it. And we just end up, in many ways, looking like we're trying to recreate a cis, a cisgender heterosexual world inside gay, you know, gay culture.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, and you know, you got this is not what we did all of this to be. Yeah. Uh, no,
2: no, it's not. No, when I'm celebrating my black queerness and when I'm, when I'm looking at what I can do at True Colors and like, I'm sorry, not True Colors, the Camorra's Cultural Corners, I did a lot of a True at True Colors. But, you know, one of our big fundraisers each month is going to be the rent party. And mm-hmm. the rent party is going to be a Harlem Renaissance style rent party. And then we can talk about black people and we. It's me, so we're always talking about it. Um, But we talk about what those extended families look like, and as the Great Migration is happening, as people are coming up north, you know, so this family would come, and then this other family would send a cousin and a nephew, and these people had to depend on these extended family networks to take care of them, and hey, now let's talk about black queer folks, because this one got kicked out of their house, and that one got, or just, just queer folks in general. We've gotten kicked out of our houses, so we create our own little house, and this is our own little family, extended our extended takes we take care of each other. Okay, beautiful, from a black queer perspective, we take care of each other in this wonderful way. Um, being, being completely, um, wait, oops, I'm sorry, that was my phone. Okay. But being completely intergenerational and celebrating our elders and celebrating the words and wisdom. So here, one of the great groups, amazing groups that we've got is a group called the Journey Riders. And the Journey Writers are older black gay folks who do spoken word, but also, um, recreate old black queer folks from the Renaissance, or from the Renaissance, but just from history. So they've got, so Mel, what does Mel do? I know that Mel does, uh, Langston Hughes, he does a monologue and a couple other smoking, spoken word pieces. And Regina, right now, I'm horrible because I cannot remember what Ma Rainey's, um, I'm sorry, not Ma Rainey, Mom's Mably. Mm-hmm. Mom's Mably girlfriend whatever her girlfriend's name was regina does a whole piece about her and what it was like to be mom um mom's girlfriend and those folks are going to be at Kamora's cultural corner performing at the rent parties because in black culture in black queer culture we love our elders we we might try to hide from them we might not hang out with them but we know that that's where the wisdom is and we know to respect that so that's that's the type of stuff that we're doing that's making it it's, we're not the idea that Eurocentric culture that just celebrates youth to the point that we forget about anyone who's over forty or fifty. Mm. Our Sundays are, are going to end at eight pm. They start at eleven am, and they are intergenerational games, family. This is what we do: watch them, you know, watch some cool movies, all the old stuff. Um, but really, creating places where we can be together, talk and figure out new ways to, to interact with each other that really, really involve interaction rather than coming together over this false sense of we all agree on this thing, so we're here in the space together.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you had to do your elevator pitch and somebody said, well, what exactly is Kamora's cultural corner? What is it?
2: <laughs> A place to come push yourself to figure out how to be in community and what your role in community is. Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, I really with a bar,
2: mm-hmm. with a bar, you got to add that last tagline, with a bar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't leave that part out. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you said that you had sort of thought about doing it from home and, and working from home and everything. So, you know, and I know that, that then suddenly you've got this place and you had to do like a shift in thinking, right, to go from what you had originally envisioned To this, And I know that there's a lot of responsibilities to having a space as opposed to, you know, you can be at home, you know, you can wear your pajamas, (laughs) you know, sometimes you, you have to be prepared for people to come in. You have to be, you're like responsible for making sure that, you know, things are going on. How, when you got ready to do that shift, who did you talk to about it? Who did you say, you know, this is what I'm thinking about doing, and who had your back? Who said, yeah, you can do this, we've got you?
2: Yes. Um, Let's see, so, when Shelly Best, who, and there's just, there's all the interesting and beautiful places where things come together. So, Shelly Best, who is the head of the Conference of Churches here. In, in Hartford, statewide organization. Um, but she also happens to be the current pastor of Redeemers AME Zion Church, which is my family's church, um, which has been my family's church since they made it up here from Alabama. Um, and she has been a wonderful supporter and Like, as soon as I stepped out and I was getting ready to do my stuff on my own, or even before that, so I was, when I was a FaithWorks fellow, she ran a program called FaithWorks that brought together faith leaders, and me and my work, I ended up in there because it just made sense, but faith leaders who worked in the nonprofit world to figure out what their leadership and what what their, how they were going to be leaders in the community. And so there, the seeds of Camorra's Cultural Corner started. So then when it was time to step out here, it was a whole lot of talking with and meeting with um, Shelly. And when I finally stepped out, she, there's that beautiful place, you know, when, that, when your mentor looks at you and is like, I've been waiting for this. Mm. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so she was wonderful. The, the, I got my back piece that I, that just got me beautifully um, was my God brother. And that is someone who, he's a doctor. And since we were in our early teens, We would talk, he would talk about how he was going to be a doctor and come to Hartford, to the north end of Hartford, and, you know, take care of black people. He's going to do all kinds of great stuff with sickle cell, and life is going to be wonderful. And I would talk about all the wonderful, great ways that I was going to save black people and uplift people through the arts, through who we are, through education. Um, I remember when Sister Soldier's book came out, it was like, yes, we're going to take this and do all this great stuff. Um, And so when we were talking, and as we talked about, you know, what that leap looks like, looks like, I was getting, ready. I was doing this from home, you know, figuring out how I was going to take the business over, and you know, I was coming up with my three-year plan to take it over over three years, and just sitting, sitting with him. We get together, you know, probably once or twice a week, and just talk about what we've got going on and such. And he just stopped, looked at me, you know, looked at me and said, "Okay, so it's time to do this. I've got you. Let's mm. do this." And like when you said that I've got you, it was just a. And so I started to say, what, you know, I started to say whatever, and, and he was like. I've been listening to you have this conversation for 30 years. I've got you. I, I know what you're doing. I know what you can do. I see what you do. Let's do this. Um, and so we're doing it. Now, working from home in my pajamas, all of that is wonderful. <laughs> but, but the truth is so much of my training involves getting out and doing stuff. And so much of my work is like outreach work. Like one of one of the things that I bring to the table is that I connect a whole lot of different human beings to a whole lot of different human beings. So, when the idea of the building and Camorra's Cultural Corner in an actual physical location came up, I had just finished, you know, we had just done the Pride Month. We had done a black arts, a black queer arts show that involved booking different spaces throughout the city and booking different people to be on panels and getting different food to do, and doing this in different spaces because I don't have a space. And then also working for so this Nightfall, which is this amazing community performance I'm doing outreach there and booking um, workshops. And so I'm doing all of these things everywhere. And if I just had a location, it would be great. Like, in the morning, figuring out, realizing that I've had in one day coffee with four different people in a row, and I just need to go somewhere else, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's that wonderful place of being able to say, oh, just meet me at the KCC, come yeah. by, just stop by during the day, oh, where's my, tra-? and so also with my cultural humility trainings, there's, you know, the, so there's usually the initial training, but then there's the check-ins and the consultation afterwards, and having a place for folks to come rather than traveling around the state to wherever it is that they are to meet them in their offices and their um, their, their organizations, is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I've got like, when you look at pictures of the space, one of the first things, and, and the building needs so much work, like there's so much money to be poured, poured into the space. But one of the very first things i spent any money on was on the ground in the back there's a huge black area and I've got a map of the city of Hartford um, broken up by neighborhoods and I painted that on the ground because I use that in trainings and again like when we started talking about Hartford we're an amazing city of great amazing human beings with a chip on our shoulder and low self-esteem, mm. so that map of who we are that beautiful collo- or map of who we are on the ground is a training tool for the community. For the college groups when they come in, for the nonprofits when they come in. Um, but that thinking about what we do, how we do it, that brings us together
1: mm.
2: so that we can do, do the work and then the work and branch out from there.
1: Okay, well, we're going to take our second break here and we're going to come back. I want to talk a little bit about more about the, the Culture Corner and also how people can be engaged and help you out. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown talking about Kamora's Cultural Corner. I was reading one of the articles about it and you said that we create and navigate brave spaces with the intention of building and supporting organic community connections. Brave spaces. I like that. Although I have seen some organizations, some things where they talk about brave spaces, but they aren't really engaging the community, even though they know that the community around them, sometimes engaging them can be hard. How important is it for you that the KCC is a brave space?
2: That is a core value.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um and, and it's a true core value. And, um, one of the, tr- one of the Trinity groups that came, through, actually quite a few folks now, but one of the Trinity groups that came through got to experience true brave space. So I am engaging the community. I'm working with the people who are there, talking to the people who are in the neighborhood, and, and again, creating relationships. So a relationship that I have is a man named Fire and his wife, Wanda. And they live in the community. They, they don't have steady employment. They are the most beautiful and giving human beings who will do anything. They they come by and help out a lot and talk and have great conversation and love the community. And knowing that we're there doing community work, love talking about what needs to be done in the community. Um, and they're super, super, super excited about what I'm in here doing. And they're watching these different people come in. It's like now, so his fire, his And so pretty much every morning after I come in, fire comes walking and goes, Hey, miss, okay, so what are we doing today? And he's just <laughs> super excited to hear what's going to happen. What are we doing today? Um, and he's, he's one of my ambassadors out there telling folks. But last Thursday, I had a group from Trinity come in, and he and Wanda were in there, and so... It's like, okay, guys, so I'm getting ready to start my training. I'm feeling a little bit. Cool. So I walk around the room, you know, make sure everything's set up, everyone's sitting down. I end up in the center of the circle. And, you know, as I'm doing my introduction, my welcome, I turn around, and there's fire and Wanda sitting in the circle with the rest of Trinity, and you know what I said I was going to do? I said the benefit of this space was that I was going to create true community space where community and nonprofits and people who regularly don't share space together will be sharing space together. <laughs> let me do it, you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. live my truth, this, this is what happens, so we're starting off, we're going to share a name, our pronoun, and a story about our name, a story about one of our names, and it's going beautifully. you know, we're going around, and we get to Wanda, and Wanda, you know, she's, my name is Wanda, Um, I forget why, oh, geez, here, I go in that awful place, I forget why her name is Wanda, but she had a story about her name being wanda and she said and my pronoun is she and her great so we get to fire and fire she says you know my name is andre oh thank you andre trinity thank you so much andre this is the first time i've heard your government name i've known you as fire but here we go um his mother knew someone named andre she really liked the name he was named andre that was it okay cool um and andre can you share your pronouns I May mean, not know what you mean no, just No what I'm talking about. Okay, well, so if I were to say that fire was coming over to help me in the garden, would I say fire's coming to help in the garden? He needs a shovel? Or would I say fire's coming to help in the garden? She needs a shovel. He goes, oh, oh, he, 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 he. Got, yeah, he, he. Okay, great. Thank you. Boom. Go on. Do the rest of the introductions. Finish talking. No problem. No harm. No foul. Conversation is great. And then we break up. And so there's an activity that we break them up into. And Fire and Wander are there. So you guys want to do this? Do it. They stayed. They, were, they created. Um, and, it, and it's a team building exercise. So as a group, they've got to create a holiday and then figure out how they're going to celebrate it and it went beautifully and everyone was enriched. Um, and a whole bunch of Trinity, Trinity law students got to hang out with Albany Avenue, Yardies, and everyone's experience was enriched that
3: day.
1: Hmm. Now, you know, the space, I mean, as I'm looking at the space, I know that you, you have, a, you're going to have a library, you have workshop space, you have a space to garden, I mean, all of these things, what all do you want to have in this space ultimately?
2: okay. Long long term beautiful plan. Gentrification is here. Gentrification mm-hmm. is coming. We we can't stop it. Um and Albany Avenue the as the the main the main artery in, in the hood. Is in the midst of it so the sidewalks are being widened the street lights are coming up you know they're they're figuring out how to uh, how to do this first cultural corner will be a space for us in a neighborhood that's traditionally been ours so the building um when it was first used for in public space it was used um as, as as kind of a first stop for a whole bunch of Jewish refugees back in the four, in the 30s and 40s. And then years later, it was the Trinidad and Tobago Club, and so it was a place for a lot of folks from, from Trinidad and Tobago. It was a meeting place, but it's also a place to go find your community and then branch out from there. Now it's what it is. We need to have a home that is ours.
3: Mm-hmm. We need
2: to have a space. But, and, and when I say Afrocentric, I'm saying a beautiful black space that's ours, a space where we can go and heal. in um, a space like in, in D.C., we know that they've put plaques up to remind us of, of the fact that we've been there. In Brooklyn, folks are holding on in the ways that they're holding on. When I talk about what the, dec- what, what the decor on the inside is going to look like, there are going to be walls filled with pictures reminding us. So so when I talk about Harvard history, those pictures are going to start off from when the neighborhood that we're in was a Jewish neighborhood. And it was a neighborhood of a whole bunch of Jewish refugees who were not liked by the people who did not live in their community. Mm. And then it then it turned into the black community because black folks were not loved or respected anywhere else it's what they had. I'm we Michelle, we know we're black lesbians. We we're in that place where one of our communities is often pitted against the other community. hmm As as gentrification comes in, how often do cities go out of their way to keep the gay people safe from the black people.
3: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: And then in the neighborhood where in the black neighborhood where gentrification is ground zero it's happening people in the neighborhood it's it's being talked about every day you know they're not doing these sidewalks for us you know this isn't for us you know this isn't for us where that's happening we're creating that place that's that's our place um so the community center now the, the building has amazing possibilities the second floor is going to be healing space i want to expand that out um you know, we're talking with other folks who have beautiful... There's a lot of beautiful folks who love the city, who've got great vision for what can happen in the city um, and and what can be happening by us, for us, for us, by us, however you want to say it, um, but a lot of what we can do. So as I'm building this is a healing space and and, and I'm focusing on the second floor is really going to be, well, the library will be up there, but the second floor is primarily going to be going to revolve around women's healing. But I'm talking to beautiful men who are doing men's mental health work in the same neighborhood Um, and really figuring out how to, how to lay the groundwork, how to have that groundwork and that infrastructure there for us. I mean, we're we're traumatized people today Mm -hmm. and as they continue to change our neighborhood, as they continue to change the face of our city, as they continue to change everything around us, that stable network needs to be there. And, and we're working hard to be a, a huge anchor for that. When you, when you look at that healing garden, there, there are women, it, along with membership, you get used to, there's all of that, but there are women in the neighborhood and, and some street preachers in the neighborhood who understand if there's a woman who needs space to be, this is a space to bring her, allow her to come back here to be.
1: Mm. You know, I think the other thing that is important, because gentrification comes, and then people are think about gay people, but you know what? Often they forget that there are black gay people, and that, be, <laughs> that being gay, we didn't turn in our black card, that, you know, we can get pulled over, harassed, you know, gentrification hurts us as much as it does the black community. And the fact that not only are you holding that space for the you're representing the blackness of it. And, and hopefully that, you know, because I mean, I was at a NAACP thing and I was telling I that, you know, If I get pulled over, I'm driving through the suburbs at night, there's no card I can pull out, you know, and go like, oh, look, I'm gay. Never mind, you know, Mm -hmm. if I get followed around in the store, there's no card that I can go by. You don't have to follow me. I'm gay. No, they see that black face, and we see every morning we wake up to that. And how important that it is, and as you see this gentrification coming, that you're there, and you're talking about, community things, things that ancestral things for our community, right there in the heart of it, but also as an openly gay woman.
2: Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I am, so here in Hartford, one of the hats I wear is I'm the chair of the LGBTQ plus commission. Um, and I, you know, I do all of my political work and stay out. But the reason why I'm the chair is because when they were bringing the commissions back, you know, I heard the rumors and I, you know, I knew that the commission was coming back and one of the charges of the commission was to make sure that Hartford was safe for gay residents. And I had that with, with what was going on in the city, I had an idea of what that meant. And so got myself on the commission and the idea no one on the commission was thinking about when they're thinking about gay residents they have and i don't know what the shorthand for neighborhoods are is is where you live but downtown is rich and white Mm -hmm. and north end is poor and black Mm -hmm. and i know that there are lots and lots and lots of north End queer people who are not safe who are not safe at all they're not safe from the police they're not safe from their neighbors they're not safe they, they aren't safe to use the local resources they are not safe The charge of the commission, no one was thinking about their safety. People were thinking about the safety of potential queer people, gay people who would want to move to downtown Hartford. So what do we do to make sure that it's a wonderful and safe and welcoming place for them? I'm on that commission Mm -hmm. so that we can remember our black and brown folks. And so being on that commission for a few years, doing all my work, that's why I am at Comorce Cultural Corner at 1023 Albany Avenue, where I am creating the community presence in the way that I'm creating community presence. Mm.
1: So, how, what supports your work? What is making this happen? And what do you need from the community to continue uh, this work?
2: I need, um, so so the fun place is in Black Panther. There's that, that scene when Killmonger gets to conda and and they say it's going to take so long to get ready for this, you know, it's going to take weeks to get ready for another battle. And Killmonger says, I don't need weeks, you know, I don't need any time to get ready. I'm ready right now. Just, I need someone to help me take my chains off.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, so using that as a metaphor of what I need is for folks to help me take my chains off. Um, so we are a capital city, which means that we have federal buildings we have state buildings we've got municipal buildings we've got lots and lots of churches we've got lots and lots of nonprofits we have the majority of the land in this town is not taxable and i've been a community activist for a long time and one of one of my complaints has been we need to figure out how to have more taxable space because homeowners in this homeowners in the city are taxed at exorbitant rates that 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 take a whole lot of folks out of home ownership. So there was absolutely no way I could open a business that was going to be a nonprofit that was going to take away from the tax base as someone who's been screaming about that for the last 30 years. Um, so I need community to come together and help with, with the basics of running. So do, do you know Patreon? No. It's not. Okay, so Patreon is um, an online... It's, it's a social, social enterprise um, website. So it's a way that you can collect patreons basically but it's a way that people who are interested in supporting artists and interested in, in, in supporting social justice causes can support you know in very very small monetary ways can support people who are doing work um and so patreon is one of our platforms but the patreon isn't actually up and running yet that'll be up this weekend but the patreon we need 500 people to donate three dollars a month to take care of the tax burden Oh, okay. And if that happens, then that is taken care of. Um, and, and again, the idea is really, in in our city, I'm not sure about where you are, but but here, we are so dependent on the nonprofits. We understand that the only way that we can get our needs met is by going to these nonprofits and begging and, and letting them know that we are the worthy poor.
1: Um,
2: and in working with people and listening to people, listening to my people sell themselves using the words and the language of the nonprofit industry rather than the words of community and people
3: hurts me and breaks
2: my heart um so in my city it would be wonderful if we can say no guys we can do this on our own we don't need to we don't need to figure out the tricks to jump through to, to not to not take care of our our fellow citizens we can do this that way so the patreon is one way to support us, um, but then also the memberships. And so talking about creating those brave spaces, there are individual memberships um, that create the community conversations and such. There's the um, so a a big piece of the work is my own personal training. So my own cultural humility trainings that I'm taking into Camorra's Cultural Corner. So the corporate memberships really help folks pay. You know they take care of a lot of those. But then what I've always offered is. After my trainings, there's been some type of an ongoing consultation, ongoing conversations. And when I can get diverse, different people into the room, that adds to the rich conversation and creates a place where we're not just talking to healthcare workers, we're not just talking to social workers, we're not just talking to teachers, we're not just talking to to, to pastors. We've got a room filled with people. Um, so when people become members of Camorra's Cultural Corner, they're invited to some special cultural humility training um, with the idea that those are creating those brave spaces. So people buying memberships and taking part in those and that program as individuals, people buying memberships and taking part in that program as corporations, and then people supporting the Patreon. And then on top of that, just people booking the trainings and, the trainings, what I offer is amazing. If you are if you get to the website, I think Olu's page is up there, but mm-hmm. Olu Sanye Bay runs the Engaged Mind Sangha, and so he'll be doing his mindfulness trainings there. And Go, who's, who's this amazing artist. There's going to be some amazing quality programming. So buying the memberships is what we need for the money, but buying the memberships creates community and really helps us create a place where, where we can help humanity.
1: No, I saw because I. Sounds uh, lofty as heck. Mm-hmm. I saw the membership, you know, and I, I saw that and um, I don't see like you said the Patreon. I don't. That's not on the website yet.
2: No, that that will be up this weekend. That um mm-hmm. so Patreon and one of the fun things about Patreon or one of the things I find fun about it. So one of the reasons why I got excited about it is you're talking to people. So they're they're the videos. So one of the main ways that you're talking to people is you're literally talking to them. You're talking to them about your work, you're sharing with them examples of your work. And so I love the work I do. I love the conversations that I have. And I think that a whole lot of folks would benefit from just hearing the conversations that happen in, in the trainings that I do. And Patreon creates a way that I can share those with folks. So not that people are gonna watch these videos and then go do exactly what I do in other places, but people will watch them and they'll start thinking about the work that's happening here. And then the idea is, if you think that what we're doing is valuable, give us $3 a month.
3: Mm -hmm. If you
2: think the work we're doing is valuable, give us $6 a month. Um, And there I'm hoping to truly build, build, I I would say in some ways build an online community, but build a place where we can actually start thinking that coming from a black, queer, Afrocentric perspective could be beneficial for us all. But maybe, maybe the ways that we've been doing things forever aren't going to move us forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you think of, like you said, $3, $6, I mean, you can't go into one of these fast food places and come out with anything, you know, for $6, let alone $3. Oh, nope. And if they, and if without getting sick, you know. But the fact that yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're investing, when you look at the pictures, I mean, I love the picture of the backyard. I mean, you know, it's like, It's a place where you can sort of see you want to go there, the things that are going to be offered, where you can come in and even learn and take it back to your community and do that. I mean, the memberships, I think that there's a lot of very doable ways that people can be engaged and involved in it. Um, I know that you... Go ahead. One one thing I was going to say is, so in the
2: memberships, the partnerships that those create, so... With the or and so if people look at it they won't know what I'm saying. So the orange membership, which is the, the hundred dollar membership, that creates a place where you then have a membership to su- to supporting some black woman-owned business, so Key Bookstore is, again, one of my babies, mm-hmm. um, but Kamani Harrison, and and a peripheral baby, but Kamani Harrison, young woman who runs, she has a black liberation bookstore that she runs, you know, very, she's very much a millennial, so she, ha- she pops up, she does um, pop-up bookstores and art galleries and such, and so now we've got a, a membership, so she's got a membership to her bookstore where she offers book selection, she's got a liberation book club that meets, she does all this great stuff, so when you buy that membership with me then you get the membership to her
3: Mm -hmm. which means
2: that we're supporting her you're supporting us um there's also another woman Yvette who has a vegetarian food truck and she's a You know, black woman doing it, using her food truck to, to, she's putting together her um, nutrition business and using the food food truck as a stepping stone. Um, And so she parks outside when we need food, when we need vegetarian food, she she parks outside and that membership creates a place where you then have a partnership with her or where you have a membership with her and you get 10% off when you buy from her food truck and we support her. Um, So in supporting me, I've made sure that Every dollar, like right now, I'm having a hard time finding a juice vendor, and I'm it looks like I'm gonna have to go out of the community. But the idea with the dollars is that first they go to black women, then they go to black men, then they go to brown women, then they go to brown men, and then they go local, and then we do what we've got to do beyond that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but but those memberships are yes, they give us the money that we need to do what we need to do. Um, there should be actually tonight, and, and as you're hearing this, like we're in the middle of building everything right now. Um, but one of the things that should be going up are the foundational tiles. Um, and so of course, you know, we got a whole lot of work to do in there. We're retiling the floors, but for a thousand dollars, people can get a tile that has their name, their logo, what their whatever quote whatever it is that they want on that tile. Um, but they can have those tiles. And there's a GSA that we've got a relationship with that has a kiln that does that's working really hard on doing all their wonderful kiln work. So the GSA, this is going to be one of the service learning projects. They're going to create those tiles. Um, and those foundational tiles are going to, to, to cover the floor in the, in the opening. Um, and then there again, it's all community work. So those thousand dollar foundational tiles, people will pay a thousand dollars for them and for every tile that someone pays for, there's someone in the community who I love, there's a group of the community who I know is doing good work and those people will get, also get a tile. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one is we're supporting each other at all times. Reparations water is coming. We'll talk about that in a few, in a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, but using, using social enterprise, like I've done it, I've stepped into capitalism. Um, it's, it's what I needed to do, it's, it's where we are, but using capitalism to uplift our people.
1: Mm-hmm. So, all right, now. So we're coming into the home stretch. What is your website? And I can tell people that if you wanna know about the different membership levels, um, there's a place where, on the website, where you can choose your membership level. Uh, there's a 50, 75, and 100 dollar membership level up right now. What's the website?
2: The website is www.comorasculturalcorner.com com. K A M O R A S C U L T U. Boy, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, give <laughs> me one second. I'm sorry, but Kamora's Cultural Corner, um, or K-A-M-O-R-A-S-C-U-L-T-U-R-A-L-C-O-R-N-E-R.com. Um, that's the website. We also have a Facebook. Um, page that has a whole lot of information that we share with constantly and then i've got an instagram as well and the instagram as we get closer to the holidays the instagram will will be a place where where we're doing fundraising as well but really the instagram is a place to define what our work is Mm -hmm. so right now the definition that i've got up there is Afrocentricity. next week i'll be sharing um the definition for cultural humility because As as I've been doing this word for a a long time, and as I'm doing it right now, and a lot of folks who've never heard these words are hearing them for the first time, there's that interesting place where people have heard the words before, and they're defining them for themselves, and the definitions are just a bit off. Mm
3: -hmm. So,
2: again, word sound power, the words that we use, carry a lot making sure that as we're, as we're stepping into this and we're talking about black, queer, Afrocentric space coming from an Afrocentric standpoint, we understand what that is. We understand what we're talking about. And we're not excluding people. Um, and, and we are not only for us, but we're inviting people to step into, into our world and see it from a different perspective and see what, what possibilities they can find in our world.
1: Now we started talking about you being a mom, your two sons. Okay, what do they think of Kamora's Cultural Center corner?
2: Let's see. Uh, the uh, 29-year-old
1: mm-hmm.
2: is—he hasn't made it up here yet. He has has told me he's incredibly proud of me, and again, that place of finally, finally stepping out on my own and doing my own thing. He's mm-hmm. like. Good for you, mom. You know you should have done this, you should have done this a few years ago because this is what I do. I'm going out outside and doing stuff. So lots of support from him and the little one. Again, we, we talk about this different world
3: mm-hmm. that we
2: live in and what it's like to be a queer mother. He loves it. This, <laughs> this is great. For so first off, you know we live over we live over here in kind of a quiet side of town. Kamora's Cultural Corner is right on, it's right there on the app. So it's an exciting place to be. So he likes the fact that there are stores close by, so that's a good time. Um, but inside, he, and this is what his mom does. So he, he's looking forward to doing presentations. He's looking forward oh, to, great. in January, he's going to host on a Sunday, he's going to host a Beyblades tournament. And so, and he, my group of friends live lives that are similar to mine, they do the same type of work. So his the kids who he's stuck with, his group of friends, this is the world that they live in. So they've talked about the the presentations that they are going to do and the programs that they are going to run at Commerce Cultural Corner. Um, so he's having a ball and loving it. And and again, it's that place where every so often I try to step outside of myself and say, what is this kid's reality for real? Because. He's got the crazy lesbian mom, 30 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, it would have been a serious liability, and now, you know, today he brings in a newspaper article and gives it to his teacher, and whatever it is, regardless of what she truly believes, or truly thinks about it, when I come to pick him up, she's like, the article is wonderful, we put it up, did it? wow, okay, so in my son's second grade classroom, there's an article about his mother, who's clearly a black lesbian doing radical black queer work in the city that he lives in. And that's on the bulletin board in his classroom is something to be proud of.
1: That's great. Well, Kamara, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me and to share this information. I will be circling back, you know, as you progress, I want to continue to talk with you about it. And, and I've, I've started taking down the road. Like I said, I was in Atlanta with one of uh, visiting one group, this past weekend so I'm going to get up there to Connecticut and visit you the pictures look great I'm excited to see it and it's so good to reconnect with you
2: it's wonderful talking to you it's just yeah this I was really looking forward to this so I'm looking forward to talking to you some more and thank you thank you thank you again I look up to you guys knowing that you've got an eye on what I'm doing makes me feel wonderful it makes me feel safe thank you
1: I want to thank today's guest, community activist and founder of Camorra's Cultural Corner in Hartford, Connecticut, Camorra Harrington. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown.